Welcome back to another episode of the Recovery Edge podcast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic and I'm joined by my co-host and wife, Kayla. Hello, everyone. And we are also joined by Laura C., who I met at the Happy Trudgers Group in Denver. Laura, how's it going? Good, thanks. How are you guys? Good, good. good. Um, so it, it's neat to have you on here. Um, I've only been in a handful of meetings with you, and we both know Mike, um, and he's been on, on this show before. He's been a great friend uh, of mine, and he has, like I think, a, like a year... Uh, he got sober a year earlier than I did. Um, so I think that's how we know each other through the Happy Trudgers group. Right. Um, yeah, Mike's great. He's very solid. He's always there and he just really cares, you know, like if I'm having a bad day, he can tell. And yeah, uh, I know he's been through a lot himself, but he just, he's made it a point to help others. Yeah, he is a wonderful man. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll get started with, you know, you can tell us your sober date and then we can, uh, you can tell us what it was like and what happened, you know, like what brought you here and what it's like today, you know, how do you, what do you feel about that? Sure, yeah. I'll give it a shot. Are you um, going to give us any legal advice? I am not, being oh, that okay. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> But, but we joke That's about fine. that in the room a lot. Like people are always asking you for legal advice. Yeah, right. Well, I know a lot of lawyers, a lot of my family and I mm -hmm. are legal staff. And so we've got lawyers in every field, but none of us are actually lawyers. So. Well, you hit the right <laughs> meeting because back in its heyday, it was filled with lawyers, I swear. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I love Happy Treasures because it's so diverse like that. Um, yeah. So when's your sober date? Uh, my sober date is May 31st, 2022. I'm approaching 16 months right now. 16 months, huh? Almost. Congratulations on that. Thank you. What brought you to the rooms? You know, what was it like? Maybe how well, you found I, your uh, first drink or whatever. This, the floor yeah, is yours and this is your story. So I'll let you have it, all right? Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I had a pretty good childhood. I have, I still have two parents that were wonderful. Uh, my dad was a firefighter and my mom worked for the phone company. Um, they're very righteous people and I have an older brother who's also I consider very righteous. Um, I kind of resented him for that. He always overshadowed me and I was kind of the black sheep um the rebellious one and he was always you know 4.0 which i did too but i still got in trouble and um but i always did have that feeling that a lot of alcoholics talk about that i didn't fit in anywhere that i was awkward i was very paranoid um i i made friends with people who had no other friends because i was i was compassionate and my mom loved that about me as a child um but I wasn't really cool until about middle school I, I you know made a lot of new friends and became pretty popular I guess and that's where the drinking started um I was about 13 I think I had like snuck sips of beer here and there before 
my parents drank and they still do like frequently, but I've never seen them drunk. So I don't think that they're alcoholics. They both had alcoholic parents, but they were always in control. They could have a few and then stop. They never did anything they regretted, you know, never got in trouble with the law. Um, so I kind of thought that drinking was a rite of passage, something you got to do when you became an adult and it was an okay thing, something you should do because my parents were good role models, but they drank. Um, but I, I kind of remember my first real drunk and there, I, we were 13 and a bunch of us had like snuck out and we were out in this field and had a handle of cheap vodka. And they like on a dare had told me to take like 10 chugs in a row, like hold it up and swallow 10 times. And I remember I, I did it and I had never even tasted vodka before that. And so it was kind of like that hurry up and get it over with, you know, when you have cheap liquor as a kid and that's all you can afford. It was like, let's just get this over with as fast as I can and get as much as I can. And that continued. Um, and, you know, I got completely hammered that night. I think I collapsed after I did my chug of 10 swallows of vodka and, um, and then we all had a blast and I had arrived. I felt really cool. I, I, I didn't feel like an outcast anymore. People thought I was ballsy and brazen and, you know, I was edgy all of a sudden and I didn't care. I wasn't paranoid and awkward anymore. Um, and then I drank a lot after that every chance I could, which is, you know, not that much when you're 13, but you know, I found myself sneaking, if I was at a friend's house, sneaking their parents' drinks, even without my friend's knowledge. And that was kind of weird. That was like a sign too, when I was like 13, my friend had fallen asleep at a sleepover and I wanted more. Like we had been sneaking her parents' alcohol and I wanted more, even though she was asleep and I was by myself. Like I was drinking alone at 13. Hmm. That's kind of crazy, right? Mm-hmm in someone else's home right yeah and risking getting them in trouble and everything and i filled the bottle back up with juice like instinctively i didn't even have to be taught that trick (laughs) (laughs) um so um i guess you know people talked about drinking like a lady or keeping your composure i never wanted to be a lady i wanted to be one of the guys like, I thought it was cool that I could drink gross beer and drink the guys under the table. And and uh, that continued. I I guess I, I started getting into drugs at 14. I think that's when I started smoking weed. And, and that was all fun. And uh, I tried ecstasy a few times at 14 as well, but I didn't really care for that. Um and just kept on partying and partying. And while I had these really good parents, you know, back then we didn't, uh, there was a couple of us that had cell phones maybe, and you would just say you were going to sleep at somebody else's house and we would be God knows where um, in really dangerous situations from that age because we had all lied about where we were and we had nowhere to go. 
So then how did and, it... Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was wondering how this um, kind of morphed as you got older into high school. Um, I was, I was still getting good grades. I was a cheerleader and was still doing pretty well. But, you know, I kind of noticed that I was taking it a little farther than a lot of my other friends who were partying. Um, and then the drugs came. Um, I think I was probably 15 when I did cocaine. And I mean, I still kind of consider cocaine just a party drug. Like I never did it daily. I never wanted to do it in the morning or, you know, it, it wasn't a lifestyle for me. It was just like one of those party drugs, but I did it and a ton of it at 15. And, um, you know, and I think it was probably around 16, I, I quit cheerleading. I um, started ditching class a lot to smoke weed or go drink or do something. And my grades started to slip. I started packing on some pounds and, um, you know, I just kind of started a downhill spiral as far as other people could see. And um, it was when I was 17, like right around when I turned 17 and I had been dabbling in all of the drugs that a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to try speed with her. And I was like, why not try everything once? And so we did, and it was disgusting. Some gross older guy's apartment and um, I tried it and loved it. And then we did it a lot, like every day we were smoking. And I, and I had told my friend that I would never do meth or heroin though. Those are the two things I would never do. And she was like, hate to tell you this, but speed is meth. And I was like, well, shit, I was already hooked. And I was losing those god awful pounds that had, were making me unpopular again. Um, so it was, it was too late by then. And I was really hooked on meth by my senior year of high school. Um, I, I still managed to graduate and I, uh, got into CU Boulder's engineering school. I was good at science and math and that's what my brother did. And I thought that's what I should just do because I was constantly trying to keep up with him even though he never touched a drug in his life. Um, so that's kind of how high school ended, addicted to meth. And then I, I went off to CU Boulder to live in the dorms. Um, I roomed with my cousin who was not into drugs at all. She had a, a high school sweetheart who she's married to this, to this day. And uh, I, I stopped doing the meth for a while because like I couldn't get it up there. But I, I would just, I would still drink and do other drugs that were available at CU Boulder, but not a lot of meth heads attending that college, unfortunately. So <laughs> I could, <laughs> that kind of like fell out of the picture until I started to, you know, gain some weight again. And I go, oh, I know what to do. It's only a 30 minute drive to Denver. Picked up the meth again. And, um, Grades started to fall, and I, uh, when I was 18, it was like April of my freshman year at college, my, my cousin, my roommate, was pregnant, 
Um, and she was just throwing up all the time and didn't want to do anything. And I was, I never fit in with any of those college girls. Uh, it was like, you know, all the kids at CU were from out of state, really, really rich kids. And we were just, you know, normal middle-class people. Um, and I never did fit in. I wasn't good at making new friends. So I would be driving home to Denver to see my old friends and to buy meth and stuff. And then, and one of my best friends in April got killed in a drunk driving accident. And I completely just lost it. I couldn't go to class anymore. I had to get fucked up all the time on everything just to escape that. Um, oh, and I also got caught drinking in the dorms. I never completed any of my probation or anything. So I was asked to leave CU Boulder and came back home um, living with my parents and stuff and continued to do meth every day. And I would hold a job for a little bit, just crappy jobs. And I don't know how they didn't know for several years that that's what I was up to. Um, but that continued until I, my 20th birthday. I kind of hit a rock bottom with all of that. And uh, I confessed to them what I had been doing to my parents and they got me set up with like a therapist and kind of took care of me while I detoxed from that. And kind of that, I never looked back when it came to meth. And I just wanted to be a normal person because the meth lifestyle is so yucky and you have to do such horrible things and hang out with disgusting people. And I just, I was living a double life with the meth. I, uh, I would maintain composure and look put together and I would hang out. I'd have like a group of friends that I would go drink with or go to the clubs and stuff, but they had no idea that I was secretly smoking meth. And um, so it, it's just a lot of humiliation being exposed of your double life and then getting back to normal. I guess that's where I was getting at. I wanted to be a normal person. And um, by the time I turned 21, I got a job in a dive bar, dive like neighborhood bar, bartending. And I kind of thought that normal people just got drunk all the time, I guess, and that, hey, at least I'm not doing math um, anymore. And at this bar, I mean, it was encouraged that you take a shot at the beginning of your shift and then when the customers buy you one and stuff. And so I, I did end up going back to school at Metro State while I was working there, but I was drinking a ton and I took some really easy courses to where I would, I could get straight A's with no effort at all and still get drunk every day. Um, yeah. Do you have any questions yet? <laughs> sure. So you were pretty good at math and science and mm -hmm. you know, you're, you have all this, the, our favorite word potential, you know, and somehow you kept all of this hidden from your parents, you know, through your, through the, like your early twenties or something like that. Um, yeah. You, eventually, like what I'm thinking is that they couldn't fathom that you were addicted to meth. Like 
that would never cross their mind. Right. right. Yeah, I had just lied and lied and lied all the time. And, you know, I got caught red-handed a few times drinking and stuff. But, but yeah, I'm sure nobody, still, to this day, nobody believes me unless you knew me at that time. Uh, but that's what I was up to. Wow. Okay. And so you're in college, you're doing Metro, but you're still drinking every day. Um, what happens mm-hmm. next in your chapter? Um, well, I guess the next kind of big thing was, uh, while I was working at that bar and going to school, I got a DUI and, um, it was kind of a dumb story how it happened. I had worked the day shift at the bar and done shots with my coworker all day long. And then I went to the grocery store I was playing house with this guy that also worked at the bar and stopped back by the bar on my way back to his house, which was on the way because, well, I think I wanted one more shot. And also there was this older Korean veteran that was always there and he lived in our neighborhood and I would give him a ride home because he always needed a ride home. So um, I stopped there. I think I had another drink with the groceries all in the car, then went and dropped the guy off. And I was coming down the switchback road in the mountains and like a dirt road. And this cop shined a spotlight on me, said he was looking for a doorbell ditcher and he thought it was me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, And then he could tell I was drunk. I failed the roadside sobriety tests and uh, I blew a 0.21, which was pretty high for considering I was grocery shopping and people considered me sober enough to drive. Um, So after that, um, you know, I got my license taken away, which made it really difficult to go to college and work and everything. And we're kind of in the mountains where there was no RTD. And yeah, that was just a horrible hit to my ego, having to constantly need a ride and Um, But the things that I did to evade the probation and continue to drink, despite being, you know, not allowed to legally, it was insane. Um, I was not going to quit drinking. And this was back before they had the UAs that could test for alcohol. You would just have to get random breathalyzers when they would call your color. And uh, I, so I would have, and then I ended up eventually with the interlock breathalyzer device in my car and I would keep these handheld breathalyzers on me because I would have class in the morning or something and I would wake up, blow into the thing and I'd be still blowing hot and oh great, and I had to scramble to find a ride or call a taxi and um Sometimes I would blow hot into the car and then I was, I constantly had it like all organized how many of those that I could get before it was reported to the DMV or how many of my random VAs that I would just miss altogether because I could not blow zero all day long. Um, And so you could like get away with skipping a couple of those before your PO would get on your case about it and stuff. And so it's just, It's insane the lengths that I went to to keep drinking because, you know, in my mind, the whole DUI was not my fault. It was that stupid Korean vet that needed a ride home. It was that stupid doorbell ditcher. 
this whole thing was just unjust and not my fault. And nobody's going to tell me to stop, quit, stop drinking, you know? Uh, and so I just, I don't know, looking back, it's just, that should have been a really big red flag. I, <laughs> and, uh, I do relate with blaming everything else in the situation, you know, and yeah. not looking at ourselves. Right. It was, it was never my fault. It was, I was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, or like I said the other day, like I would accuse people or say that I'd gotten roofied on nights where I got way too drunk. It was like, how did I black out? I must have been roofied. I mean, clearly I did nothing wrong. <laughs> so you get your DUI and you're dealing with your consequences, but this still isn't enough to get you sober, right? Oh, God, no, no. I was still in my early 20s at that point, and there was no end in sight. Um, and so I eventually got fired from that bar for being too drunk on the job, which is a very amazing feat considering everybody there is drunk all the time on the job. And uh, I got a job at this crappy little bar that had just opened. Um, and it kind of sucked because I didn't know anybody and I couldn't drink there because I had that interlock in my car. And so I would actually have to like stay sober on my shift and I hated it. Um, but that ended up being where I met my husband. And so I, I'm very glad that it all happened um, like it was meant to be. Um, uh, I don't know where to go from there. So how did you explain to your, did you, were you kind of like embarrassed to tell him, oh my God, I have to drive with this thing? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he would come in with all his coworkers cause it was near his work um, on, on Fridays for happy hour and, they would always ask me if I would stick around and have a drink with them. And I said, I told them, no, I can't. I have an interlock and I got to go to school in the morning or something. And uh, yeah, and it turned out they had like a Halloween party at this bar and it was in the basement of a motel. And for the Halloween party, I decided I was actually going to have a good time and get drunk at my bar. So I got a motel so that I wouldn't have to drive home and uh, woke up and I, I knew Josh had come to the room that night and stuff, but I didn't really remember what had happened. <laughs> yeah, I had called my friend. I was like, oh, I had another one night stand. Oh, my God, this sucks. And, and then now we're married. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just so crazy. Yeah, he was Tommy Chong and I was... Uh, Mia Wallace from Pulp Fiction. Oh my God, so cute! <laughs> I love her. So you're just charming the pants off of him, or I mean, I don't mean that literally. <laughs> what I mean is, you know, every he thinks everything is hunky dory, everything's okay, right? Uh, and you guys get married, I think or what? Ignored a lot of red flags because <laughs> he saw me. Like we would we were dating and stuff and I would wake up and have to blow into my thing and see if I could drive my car or not. And 
he would have to give me a ride if I couldn't. And he, he still dated me. I still have no idea why. But, um, is he an alcoholic too? Or he just, he doesn't see, he literally just couldn't see red flags. I mean, I used to not be able to see red flags <laughs> I, myself, but. <laughs> I, yeah, I he's not an alcoholic at all. Um, he's wonderful and he's been so supportive. He hasn't had a drink since I decided to quit, so. Oh, God bless those people. I know. It's so weird. He could just be like, I'm not going to drink again and then just do it like. Like tell, nothing. Tell him to get a chip anyway. So just come and show off. Man. <laughs> That's great. So how how did the marriage start to go then? How long have you guys been married? Oh, uh, nine years. Okay. Tell us about uh, that. You know, related yeah, related to your so alcoholism and addiction, of course. Right. Um, I've finally graduated from Metro and got a job at a law office. And so that was, that was quite a shock, you know, but it was a good, good thing for me that I wasn't in bars all the time. Cause I knew that wasn't healthy. And I knew at that point I was going to die if I didn't get out of the bars. But so, and we moved in together pretty quickly. Um, and everything was going great. My family loved him and we were together a couple of years before we got engaged and then got married when we were about 28. And, uh, you know, all this time there would be, he, he liked to go out to all his friends are big drinkers. A lot of them are alcoholics, but he's not. Um, and we would just party and have fun. And, and sometimes I would cause a scene or get too drunk, but it, I think that my tolerance was high enough because I was drinking frequently enough that it didn't get out of control too often. Um, and I guess after we were married for a while, for a couple of years, um, and he had told me he was, you know, I told him about my past with drugs and stuff, and he told me he wouldn't tolerate that, you know, if I ever got back into drugs. He didn't say which one. <laughs> so, uh, I guess, yeah, and uh, cocaine just, you know, started showing up again, and I kind of, I used it just to try and not be so drunk, you know, I would never have done cocaine at that stage in my life without already being drunk and having my inhibitions you know, gone. Um, but, and then I, you know, I, I, like randomly my friend had it at a New Year's party and, and then in, I found out like a cousin of mine was doing it and stuff. And so I found ways of getting cocaine and I was doing it behind his back. Um, not too often, but it, it was still something that was very dishonest, you know, and, uh, how long did that go on for? Um, well, there was about three years between when we got married and I got pregnant with our oldest child. So that went on. And yeah, I mean, after we were married, it started getting kind of ugly. It would be 
you know, partying all night. And then I would be like, oh, let's go to brunch and stuff. And it's, he knows what that means. I'm going to go get drunk again on Sunday. I'll probably call into work on Monday. And he didn't want to do that because he's not an alcoholic. And apparently those people don't like drinking in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also strange to me. But um, so he would get really annoyed with me. And my and I would find somebody else to go get brunch with or just, you know. And, and I started to really have the guilt at that point. I don't think prior to that I ever really had much guilt about my drinking. I thought it was something normal to do in your 20s and but I would just start feeling guilty but even if I didn't black out even if I did remember everything that had happened I just kind of feel like a piece of shit not be able to explain why and I did see a therapist briefly uh thinking that he could help me to moderate my drinking uh but I wasn't willing to quit and as we all know now, that was probably the only option. There was no such thing as moderation. Um, so I kind of gave up on that idea and, and we did want to have kids eventually. So after turning 30, we kind of started trying and I did get pregnant with my oldest and I did quit drinking then. Um, and was so that it was a struggle first... to quit drinking for pregnancy or were you able to be like, well, there's, you know, sometimes we can't do something for ourselves, but we can do it for our children. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, that was not a struggle. No, um, I, I did have that occasional like glass of red wine that they say is okay, which it was just stupid because none of us just want one drink right and so it was like what well, this is just it's risky because actually doctors recommend you don't drink anything at all and it's not getting me drunk why am I doing this um and so yeah I did abstain for that pregnancy and uh we had our baby and everything was going really well with him and um I, once I weaned him, which was when he was a year old, I was able to drink as much as I wanted again. And, uh, and that went downhill really fast. Um, the drugs came back, they showed up and yeah, I just started to feel so guilty and, uh, we wanted another kid and it happened very quickly that I became pregnant after that. Um, and I guess I'm getting kind of close to the present. Is there anything else I should touch on? At this point, it's really what moment is it that got you into the rooms? Okay. Your uh, yeah, I should. Okay. So, yeah. So then uh, when my oldest was one, we got pregnant with our second and... They were born less than two years apart. And this is, yeah, I guess pretty much the turning point for me. So, you know, I always thought that I would party in my 20s, get it out of my system, and then become a mom. And then I I wasn't going to be one of those drunk moms. Like, I'm better than that. Um, I, would, I would be too busy after I had kids to be drinking like that. 
and that just wouldn't happen anymore. I thought I'd snap out of it. Um, and I kind of did, you know, for those brief periods of time. And, oh, look, I abstained for nine whole months. <laughs> um, but I uh, had my youngest in March of 2020, and that was a really dark time. Uh, beginning of COVID, everything was on lockdown when we came home with him. And uh, I, I got really depressed. I definitely had postpartum depression on top of the COVID and everything. And um, he was a really fussy baby. And it, I just, you know, looking back, like a lot of the postpartum depression was also just alcoholic thinking. It was like, why is this happening to me? Why is my baby so fussy? He's not sleeping. I had hired a therapist to teach me how to get my babies to sleep. This is bullshit. This is all happening to me. Everything, you know, was about me. I was so self-centered. I wasn't compassionate towards this baby who was not feeling well and crying. I was mad at him for ruining my life. And I have so much guilt about that to this day. Um, but so, and then, you know, for the first year of his life, we were still pretty much on lockdown. We have our parents who are in their, they're about 70 years old that were babysitting for us while we worked. And so we had to protect them from COVID. We couldn't be going out to bars or partying, not that we would, but um, so we were really isolated. <laughs> and I, we did start drinking again. Um, my wonderful husband did quit drinking for both of my pregnancies as well, just in solidarity or whatever. I didn't make him. That's amazing support system. Wow. <laughs> I know. He's wonderful. Uh, he asked me if you want, wanted him to be part of this. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe down the road. Exactly. That would be awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, we would drink like a couple of beers, but I was still breastfeeding and I was able to kind of moderate. And then once in a while we'd have friends over and I'd drink too much, but I, I was working from home a hundred percent of the time. And like, if I was hung over, nobody would know you look like shit all the time. Anyways, when you have a newborn baby, <laughs> like, you know, like I didn't have to show up to the office. And so but it, it, I was still kind of keeping it under control until I weaned him and got my freedom back yet again. And uh, things were opening back up and they, it just took a turn for the worse again. Um, it wasn't long until I was blacking out. I would, uh, I would pick a fight with my husband just to get out of the house because he didn't want to party like the way I wanted to party. And, you know, take an Uber somewhere, which he hated because I always pass out in Ubers. Uh, he's had to pull me out of them before, like if they were lucky enough to find my house. And he was, he would just worry, just like my mom did. I would be gone and MIA and not answer the phone. And I, I just can't believe now that I did that to them. But, um, yes, and then... It, I started to do cocaine again, or I would try to find Adderall. Um, here and there, I would think it would, I just, I, I wanted to drink more. 
I never wanted the party to end. And I got to the point where it was like every time I would drink, I would black out. And so I needed something to maintain. And um, I, around that time, I had one moment where like it was my birthday. I had gone to a concert at Red Rocks and I completely blacked out there. Uh, apparently had to be kind of like carried out of there and stuff. And I woke up in the morning and it's my birthday and I'm going to day drink and got all drunk that day and got in a big fight with my dad and couldn't take care of my kids because my husband had to work. And um, that was that was a big turning point where I realized I needed to quit drinking. Um, I talked to a, my doctor about it and he recommended AA and I was like, nope. Um, <laughs> I was raised an atheist and it always had been an atheist and I was not willing to do anything involving, well, what I thought was religious at that point. And, uh, so I read a lot of books, they call them like Quitlet, um, people who claim to have alternatives to AA to help you quit drinking. Um, and and I would try, and then I would just say, oh, come Friday, I'd be like, screw it, I can have a few drinks. Or I would like try to practice moderation and stuff, but it never worked. And I just kept getting in trouble and, you know, worrying my husband and getting blackout drunk. And, um, and I tried, went back to the doctor and tried, um, uh, something really dumb called the Sinclair method, which I do not recommend. And I'm, I'm surprised that I've never met anyone else in AA that had heard of it, but it's where you get naltrexone, which is for people who are like heroin addicts, what is it, an opioid antagonist. And, but it also is supposed to block the receptors in your brain from the dopamine, dopamine that comes through when you drink and so it I kind of considered it like the chantix for alcohol like you were allowed to keep drinking but you would just stop enjoying it and eventually just not do it anymore and there's all these celebrities and stuff that claim to have gotten sober that way and and uh I tried that and it just I totally failed it was like I would take the pill and yet I would not be enjoying my drinking. So I would, but what's our instinct then? We drink more and more and more. So they call it, I would drink through it or I would just not take the pill because I wanted to have fun. And, you know, we just don't have the discipline for that. So that was another one of my half measures that availed me nothing. <laughs> um, and a couple of months later, our friend, well, it's actually my husband's good friend passed away, I think of alcoholism, and we had to go to his funeral. And then we also had tickets to a comedy show that evening. And so we got the babysitter for the night. My parents were gonna have the kids. And the plan was that I was to drive to this funeral and to the comedy show and then we could take an uber home from that point 
um, but I was going to be the DD. But oh, that damn bartender at the Mexican place, or, you know, it's always everybody else's fault. We ended up having drinks, and I there was an after party for the funeral. I was like, I vaguely remember double fisting there. It's like, what am I doing? Um, by like four in the afternoon, I was blacked out. And I kind of, I came to at my mother-in-law's house. I don't know what, why we had to stop there. Uh, and Josh said, we're not going to the comedy show. And I was like, why? And I was so mad at him. I said, just make me some coffee. We're fucking going. And he's like, no. And he drove us home. And I continued to fight with him and just grabbed my keys and took off. Grabbed it few hundred dollars and proceeded to go on a mission to find drugs. I ended up in a very dangerous situation that night. I don't know that I want to tell it, but I, you know, I'm lucky to be alive. I knew, you know, Josh had told me that numerous times the year prior to that, that, you know, one more and I'm not going to put up with it anymore, you know, and my marriage was going to end. And so I knew that this was it. I knew that I could not moderate. I was supposed to be the designated driver that day. And um, and I physically could not do it. And I knew at that point that one more drink could end up killing me or ruining my life. Um, and so I went to AA. It wasn't until about seven days later that I went to my first meeting. And, uh, yeah, everything's been different ever since. What was your first uh, month like in AA, you know? Well, <laughs> I went in April of 2022, but my sober date is not till May 31st. So I, I went and I went to a women's group on a Saturday, a um, bunch of lovely what, ladies. Was that your first meeting? Yeah, that was my first ever. I knew okay. nothing about AA. Tell us about yep. your first meeting. It was, I showed up at this church, was sitting in the parking lot and saw all these nice ladies heading in the building. And I thought, oh no, church people, like, what? where are the alcoholics? Where are all the derelicts like me? But they're now, and it turns out that they were heading to the AA meeting too. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And uh, they were very welcoming. Um, the lady who is now my sponsor was hanging up a little sign, said AA on it, and walked me back to the room. And um, I just, you know, finally felt understood because my whole life prior to that, I, like my family, I don't know if they're normal drinkers. I think they're heavy drinkers, but not a lot of them are alcoholic. And they would just tell me, like, just don't get so drunk, Laura, you know? Like, just get a little bit drunk. Just pace yourself. Why do you have to do this? You know, everybody thought that it was just a lack of self-control on my part or disrespect, you know, that I was intentionally ruining the night for everybody, that that was my goal because I'm a selfish bitch, you know? And... 
finally, you know, I was surrounded by people who understood that I wasn't a bad person. When you first started AA coming in as an atheist and you see the the steps and the uh, traditions on the wall and you see the word God, like what was going through your head at that time? Or were, was your gift of desperation so great that you were just like, whatever, I have to do something Exactly. Yeah. I was so desperate at that point. I was like, I'll play along. Um, I wanted nothing to do with that, but I happened to know the serenity prayer from my grandma, like had it painted on the wall or something, <laughs> you know, so I, I played along. Uh, but yeah, I was just so desperate. I was like, just tell me what to do. Like these, these women are happy and I am more miserable than I've ever been in my life. I think I even called like a suicide hotline after that rock bottom. Um, so I, I also had two little kids though, and it was like Saturdays and I figured that was the only time I could go to meetings while they were napping because I didn't want to burden my husband. I had already done that enough. Um, and then like, I wasn't making it every Saturday because there would always be some excuse. And uh, and he wasn't being the most supportive, I would say, kind of was acting burdened by it. And so I kind of went like every other week. And then um, on Memorial Day, when I had 49 days, I relapsed. Uh, and I was kind of drinking at him because I felt like I was doing everything for the kids. I was still like totally involved in self. Everything was happening to me. Um, I'll show him. And we had a barbecue at our house and some in-laws were coming that I hadn't even met yet. They were like in town and stuff and I completely blacked out. And, um, and that was really embarrassing, but I, called my sponsor the next morning and she said can you go to a meeting today and I said and it was a Tuesday and I had called in sick to work and my kids were at my mom's house and so I was like yeah I guess I can and everybody had always told me you need to go to more than one meeting a week and I would tell them like you're insane I don't have time for that I work and have two kids um but after that relapse I knew that I needed to do something differently. And my husband saw that, you know, we needed to take it more seriously. And so I started going to about three meetings a week at that point. And I've been sober ever since. What is your relationship with your children? How, how's that evolved from being, you know, they were quite small during your rock bottom and then you know, as they're getting older, you're, you're more sober, you're, uh, you know, like more present in, in their life. Like, what does that look like? Um, yeah, I'm very lucky that they were so young that I hope they don't even remember it. Uh, my oldest, he, he said once that he's, why was I sleeping on the kitchen floor? he asked me oh doesn't that just break your heart like yeah yeah and it was like 5 p.m and I like completely passed out on the kitchen floor mm -hmm. once so um in front of him so 
other than that, like, I don't think they really knew. They knew what beer was and that kids couldn't have it and stuff. But, but um, my relationship with them is so wonderful now. Like, I loved my kids as much as I possibly could at that point. But being so selfish as we are when we're in active alcoholism, I, I didn't know what love was. Um, I, I would like read them books every night and I was constantly keeping up this persona. It was, you know, the perfect mom on paper. Everything was always in order and they ate healthy food. And I was just, I was killing myself to keep up the image of a good mom during my drinking and stuff. But really I wasn't being present with them. I never just like sat down with them and like everything was just an obstacle to get me to my drink. I'm reading to them at like stories at night and yeah, that's something a good mom does, but I'm just like, can we hurry this up? The bear is calling my name. Um, yeah. And it's now, a means like, to an end, right? Like to get them to go to yeah. bed sooner so that you're not there enjoying them. It's just to meet that activity is a means to end so that you can get yeah. to your next drink. And I think like, and thank you for being so vulnerable and honest about that because I really believe there's an extra layer of shame for women in that has, you know, that's struggling with addiction. But women with small children have an added layer. And I think we're so scared, um, you know, to say anything about that or to be labeled a bad mom or uh, to not to not conform to society's idea of what a good mom looks like on Instagram, right? Like the house should be clean. You should be working. Your kids should be put together and you should be doing these Instagram worthy activities with them. (laughs) And meanwhile, like all your thing is like, I have to get to my next drink. I'm not okay. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of courage to be able to be that open and vulnerable. So thank you for that. Cause I think there's a lot of women out there that will identify with that and that will really uh, resonate with them and allow them to know like it's okay and they're not the first and they're not a horrible mom and there is help. Right. Yeah, definitely. I remember like I would unfollow people on Facebook when they posted like good pictures of being a good mom because it would just make me feel ashamed. Yeah. You know, I, I was never happy for anybody else. I was either jealous of them or judging them um, because it was all about me. Yeah, you're either keeping up or you're trying to like one up them, but you're like, yeah. you're just so busy, wrapped up in the, in that game that you're, meanwhile, they're like tugging at your pants like, mommy, like try, you know, just trying to make eye contact with you. But um, yeah. Yeah. What is life like today now? You know, now that you're sober, you have over a year, 16 months. What's the difference? It, it's great. Like, it's it's chaotic having two young boys. Um, but I have peace through all the chaos because I am not worried about that. Like, people tell me that it must be hard to get sober when you have these two young kids kind of driving you crazy. And it's like, no, it's actually so much easier not having to, because 
dealing with my alcoholic self was like an additional kid to take care of <laughs> for all of us, you know, and it's just this huge weight that's been lifted. I don't have to, it, I, everything's always done and it's effortless almost. Life is so much easier and we're at peace and nobody's worried about me. And I, I, I truly enjoy being a mom now. Um, and yeah, I think we're all a lot happier. So if you could, if you would have been able to give yourself a piece of advice when you most needed it, what would that have been? What would it be? I wish that I had known that sobriety doesn't suck because I always viewed sobriety as a punishment or a sentence for something you've done wrong. Anybody who didn't drink, I assumed, had, you know, done something horrible and then had to go to AA and be miserable for the rest of their life and just white knuckle it while everyone around them was having so much fun. And I had no idea that I could find happiness in sobriety. So. When we're, we're the happiest we've ever been, so. And I, I always love asking this question um, because I think, you know, AA always teaches us like a God to our own understanding. And so for, for myself, it's really evolved over the years that I've been in recovery. But what is, what is your idea of God or how has that evolved? It went from being an atheist to just kind of faking it and playing along for that desperation. What is it like today? Uh, today, I... I still have not had any burning bush or giant spiritual experience, uh, but I, I know I'm not keeping myself sober because I know I couldn't do that. Um, and I, I like the concept that I've heard before that God is not me. I don't need to control everything anymore. And it's so liberating. Um, giving things to God. And I do pray every day. I, I don't know if anyone's listening. I honestly don't, but I, I try. And I, I feel like just relinquishing control and finding spirituality and nature and music and everything. And that, that's good enough for me at the time. No, I think that's amazing. I mean, it's always a journey, right? Like we're yeah. always evolving. Well, I would say for your first time telling your story and then being so open and honest and then doing it on the podcast too, like you're you're working a strong program. Keep going, girlfriend. You're doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for checking out the show. Remember, you can help support the show at recoveryedgepodcast.com with a donation or Venmo us at Recovery Edge. We appreciate all your support in helping us grow the show. Please share the podcast with your friends through your favorite podcast app. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. We also have a new YouTube channel, which you can find in our show notes. Please give us a like or a review wherever you listen to the show. If you would like to share your own experience, strength, and hope on the show, contact us at recoveryedgepodcast.com and use the chat feature or contact link. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.